This is a CBC Podcast. It happens to real people. It happens to normal people. It happens to your next door neighbor. And it happens to people that you would never expect it to happen to. It's just constant. I'm, I'm afraid to check my phone at times because I'm worried. I'm going to get another message about somebody else who's died. It's just nonstop. We lost four people in one week, and we knew them by names. With what other health condition would you think is normal to know that people are dying to the degree that they are today, that you think we, we're not going to do everything we can to, to stop that from happening, to save lives? But it is happening, and this is where it is at. So we have to do something. I, I, I don't have all the answers. I just know that something has to be done. Something has to be done. We heard that from so many people, no matter their politics, when it comes to the toxic drug crisis. When the House started our special focus in the fall, the latest figures showed on average 21 people were dying every day from opioid overdoses. Just before Christmas, new numbers from the Public Health Agency of Canada revealed it's now an average of 22 people per day. I'm Catherine Cullen, and this week on The House, some of the most compelling people we met and what we learned about the toxic drug crisis. So many Canadians know someone who's overdosed. It's personal for everyone from politicians to those fighting this crisis on the front lines. Here's Jameson Shortreed, a paramedic we met in Thunder Bay, Ontario. Oh, it, it absolutely, absolutely affects me, and there's personal reasons why this opiate crisis affects me maybe more than it may affect others but it's it's sad to see it's walking up to the feet sticking halfway out of the alley and wondering when I flip that person over if it's going to be somebody that I know it's become that bad in this city where you're running into friends family members people you may may know vicariously through others that have kind of succumbed to this addiction and this crisis that we're having that that's happened to you? Um, yeah. Like, just going out and saying it, like, my father, he's he's a drug addict. So one of my biggest fears is coming to a call, and I've had it before, right, where I've just been overcome with anxiety. Rolling up to a call anytime we get a 50s-year-old male potential overdose, right? It's, it's, it's very hard because it has touched me personally. And I see these people, and I feel for these people because I've gone through it. I've seen what it does firsthand. It, it can definitely be tough. I've had my struggles with it. I feel like I've I've worked through to a place where, you know, it's not as detrimental to me being at work, but it, it definitely still weighs on me, absolutely. Like I said, when that 50-year-old male possible overdose call comes in, that's when, that's when the heart starts thumping again, right? It also hits home for some members of Parliament, the people who helped shape the policy and debate around this crisis. Here are some of their stories, starting first with the Conservative MP for Caribou Prince George, Todd Doherty. Yeah, it's deeply personal. I uh, have a brother that's currently on the streets, uh, has been on the streets for going back to the 90s now, uh, gripped in this, uh, this epidemic, uh, lost a brother-in-law to uh, overdose. Um, had an uncle that was addicted to drugs as well, too. My brother, you know, here's a guy that, um, a kid that was the youngest out of a family that, um, uh, where 
dysfunction and abuse kind of perpetuated our daily lives. And, um, you know, I think for a long time I blamed him for his, his illness and his addiction. And uh, I think it's a product of what we grew up in. I've gone into uh, drug houses. I paid his debt off with bikers and uh, the drug dealers. Um, we pulled him off of a bridge uh, in the middle of the night. Um, you know, we brought him into our home, scoured the streets in many cities in uh, in our province. Uh, you know, trying to find him to make sure he was alive. You know. Um, it's something else to uh, look in dumpsters for your, you know, for a loved one's body. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's something else. Patty Haidu, member of Parliament, Thunder Bay Superior North. Prior to this work, I ran a large homeless shelter in Northern Ontario. I have witnessed people who have died of overdose. I mean, it's probably one of the most traumatic work experiences of my life, attending the shelter late at night where a young man lost his life. But I'll never forget the call to his mother. And you know, they were not close. This young person had just been released from prison. It's a very uh, sensitive time for an opioid user. They've been sober for a long time and they don't necessarily remember or know uh, what dose will be safe for them. And um, this mom asked me for help finding clothes to bury her child. They were living in a really desperately poor situation with no financial resources. Um, and she was devastated that she had lost her son and she deserved all the respect in the world. John Barlow, Member of Parliament for Foothills, Southern Alberta, Conservative Party. For my wife and I, we went through this with our, our oldest daughter. And for us, it was, it was like a bolt of lightning. Um, we uh, had kind of lost track of her for, for a few weeks. Um, you know, obviously as parents, you're, you're phoning, you're, you're texting, you're Facebook messenger, whatever you can do to kind of keep in touch. And uh, finally, um, I drove up to Calgary uh, went to her apartment and just pounded on the door for what seemed like half an hour until uh, she finally answered. And I will never forget um, opening, opening the door and seeing her there. She didn't look, didn't look my, my kid, didn't look like my daughter. Uh, it was the scariest moment in my life. Um, now, thankfully, uh, I'm extremely proud of her and how she has recovered and is doing so well eight years later. Um, but at that moment, I thought I'd lost my daughter. Uh, I really assumed that I would take her to the hospital and they would immediately put her in a treatment program. But for the doctor to come out basically and say, yeah, she's overdosed on fentanyl, um, she's good to go, you can take her home. I, I, I couldn't believe it. It was like, you're on your own. Uh, Gord Johns, NDP, the riding of Courtney Alberni. If you say this is urgent, where's the plan? Where's the plan with a timeline and resources? They spent less than 1% responding to this crisis than they did on COVID-19. Why? Because of the stigma. The war on drugs has failed, we know that. 
everything should be grounded in evidence-based policy and led by experts, not politicians. Make it easier for these, these people to get into recovery. It's frustrating. You know, as I said about my brother, he was saying all the right stuff. You know, if only there was a bed. He was shot twice with a shotgun and um, just a couple of years ago in a drug deal gone bad. And there's no bed for, available for him for recovery. He said all the right things. This was, he was going to get better. And, um, you know, still had tubes and everything sticking out of him and back on the streets again. There's not a one size fits all, but all avenues must lead to recovery. It has to lead to recovery. It almost seems like we've just taken a shotgun approach to this without a real focused, coordinated effort on what programs work, what don't, where is the best use of our resources, and to ensure that uh, Canadians suffering with addiction have access to the programs that they need. Uh, and that's what I experienced with, with my daughter. There was no treatment program for her to get into that right away. Um, we had to wait you know, weeks before uh, she would be able to access one. And it made, it made it that much tougher to make sure that she was okay and didn't relapse. And, and I'm sure she, if she was here right now, she would say, oh my gosh, you wouldn't leave me alone. Um, but we wouldn't leave her alone. We, we kept an eye on her every day. And I feel we're just perpetuating an ongoing crisis and hoping that it, re it resolves itself. Right? If we just kind of put a lot of money out there and, and put the safe supply out there, this, this will somehow solve itself. It's clearly not working. Clearly something else has to be done. What that, what that solution is, I don't think there is a definitive answer, but gosh darn it, we have to start putting some effort into this. Uh, this cannot carry on the way it is. I used to say at the shelter, when people come to the door looking for safe supplies, clean needles, you know, uh, pipes that are clean, etc. What they're saying is, I still have hope I could get better. And if I get better, I don't want to have HIV or hepatitis C. That's a health-seeking behavior. And so if we reframe that as about, in, in the sense that that's a hopefulness that people have, you know, imagine if they didn't care enough to go and get a clean needle. That means someone's given up hope that there's really anything to look forward to. So to me, that's the first thing, to understand that Harm reduction is, is a health-seeking behavior. We have to continue to be brave and bold in trying new things. That was Liberal MP Patty Haidu. You also heard Conservative MPs Todd Doherty and John Barlow and NDP MP Gord Johns. So yeah, to the right here, the tent city. Again, we just see tents covered in tarps. People just, yeah, trying to live, trying to survive. Thunder Bay has more overdose deaths per capita than anywhere in Ontario, among the highest in the country. When the house was in the city, we met with a group of mothers who had all lost children to overdose, many after getting off drugs, then relapsing. That includes Carolyn Carl. She created a foundation in memory of her daughter, Dana. It tries to support people in recovery. Here's part of our conversation. Dana had been sober for almost 10 months, and um, she had a relapse, which due to the toxicity in the, the drugs today, she overdosed and, and passed away. I very soon after recognized the need for more resources. So uh, a light went on with a few of her girlfriends after her, her passing. And we thought, wouldn't this be a great thing to do in Dana's memory to start something in Thunder Bay and start recruiting all the moms getting together and 
trying to find some solutions to this, this I call it a catastrophic uh, crisis that we're facing. My name is Faye Pettypiece, and I am the mother to Jessica Jonasson, who passed away, sadly, on August 6th, 2022. Much like Carolyn's story, um, my daughter was almost three years clean. Um, I spent money and sent her away to a treatment centre. She was doing so well. Um, and then I wanted to go out on my birthday, August 5th, with my three kids. And she wanted to stay out. And... As a mother, I, I thought, well, she's 30, she's going to be 32, I can't say no. Um, but I did have a lovely dinner with my three children. She stayed behind and met up with a friend. And again, um, it was a lethal dose of fentanyl that she took. The coroner said there was no trauma, it was instant. Um, she died in my home, I, I found her. Um, you, I could you not... You found her? I did, I could not revive her I had to call my husband down because I panicked and he came down and um, we had 911 on the phone the paramedics came the firemen came I don't know how many police were at my home and uh, the paramedic came up to tell me that my daughter didn't make it but I kind of knew um, as a mom you kind of know and I just kind of went numb. I don't even remember how many people were in my house. There were so many police officers coming and going and fire trucks. And But the saddest part for me that I, I, I won't get out of my head, I can't get out of my head, I've even gone for help for it, is when they carried her out in the body bag. And they drop her beside the door. And then they bring the stretcher up and they put her in the, they put her in the van and take her to the funeral home or to the hospital I just think her you know being clean for that long her body couldn't take it but how do you know they're going to relapse right like it, it as a mother you feel like a failure like I shouldn't have gone out that night or I don't know it's it's tough tough and not only are you grieving her but your life has also changed you're caring for your grandsons now can you tell me about that I am caring for Tobias and Tyrion. Um, Tyrion is just turned six, and Tobias is eight. They were doing pretty good. Um, we we were going through counseling throughout the year at the hospice, which was wonderful. The people there are amazing. Um, but now I'm finding like they're struggling a little bit right now because Tobias will sit on the stair and cry, like you know, I miss mom, or he'll come home from school excited about something and he can't tell mummy but um I just try to encourage them that mom's here like mom's here you know and then one morning which was <laughs> I was standing outside with waiting for them to get on the bus and Tyrion says to me oh mom's in the tree and I said excuse me he said mummy's over there I said what are you talking about and my shivers on my neck and he says yeah mommy's over there just listen and I could hear a bird or whatever Aww. but sometimes I think like they're little mo I don't know spirits come I don't know I gotta believe right and you know Faye if I can interrupt for a minute like when you're saying your grandsons are like happy at times and then they're like okay mommy can come home now let's talk to mommy I, I feel that about Dana and I'm sure we all do like yeah. we're strong and we do what we need to do to get through and then you have those tired weak moments and you're like oh I wish they could just come home and I cannot imagine 
I don't have two little grandsons looking up at me, so I feel like I want to give you a bigger hug than I need, you know, because I can't imagine that. Well, I just want to say sometimes I feel blessed because I have part of her. When you when you turn it the other way, I yes. have part of her still here that right. I can hold her and squeeze her. But for the longest time, and I guess this is part of the grief, you just think they're gone away, they're coming home. And sometimes, like, it, I just think, yeah, she's coming home for supper. Yeah. But they're not. What the mothers in Thunder Bay want is more treatment and recovery beds. They don't want other parents to lose their children to overdose. A sad common thread, but I think we can help each other through this and make changes and help other families so they don't have to go through this. Nobody should die from a relapse. That is not how it should be when you're addicted. It's an illness, and part of it is relapsing. And, you know, I just feel like we need to do what's right. So you know? what is that? Well, I, I sometimes think that, you know, I've been advocating at every level of government. I've been, written letters to the editor. But really, should the moms that have lost their children be the ones that have to start to make the changes? Do what's right. I don't care how long it's going to take. People are dying every day. Let's get moving on this. We, we do coffee, we do like, sometimes we do breakfast, lunch and supper if we have the means to do so. While family members grieve and advocate, what about those people who are trying to survive in the throes of addiction? At a Thunder Bay drop-in centre, we met Vanessa Tukane. She's in recovery and using her experience living on the streets to help others at this drop-in centre. She told me how she came to be addicted to fentanyl. I really thought that I was going to be different. I thought that I would be nothing like my mom. I always struggled with mental health. I started using, started in high school just smoking weed. And then um, I drank a little. And I, and I didn't really see that it was a problem because I didn't really do it excessively. But like when I did, bad things would happen. I know one of the first times I drank, I got raped. I think I was 15 years old. And then I didn't drink after that. And then I got pregnant at 17, had my first daughter at 18, my second daughter at 20, and I was in an abusive relationship with their dad, and I just, um, I remember so vividly, like, taking that first drug, and it was, like, that sense of relief, like, I had never felt before, and I knew from the moment I took my first hit that I was screwed, um, because I had never wanted something so bad. That was when I was 21. When I was 24, I got into fentanyl, and that changed everything. And um, I went on a seven-year bender after that. During that time, you know, I, I learned early on in my addiction that I could, like, I could use myself, right? I, I could use myself to get what I wanted. And, and for a while, it was... It wasn't like I really had to. I could just play off of it. I didn't really, in an exchange kind of a thing, sell myself. But when I got addicted to fentanyl, I think it was like a month later, like I was working on the street, just on Mackenzie over here. And I worked on the street for seven years. I lived out there, survived out there. 
stayed up all night being cold, having nowhere to go, bouncing from trap house to trap house, abusive relationship to another one. Things I survived were like rape, kidnapping. A lot of those things that I did to survive, not just for my drug habit, but to feed myself, to house myself, um, I pay for that today still. Um, with how I think and feel about myself and you know I've overdosed countless times I remember I would overdose wake up in the hospital and my first thought is to like I'm dope sick I'm eating and I would go in the bathroom and get high again like I was so insane I didn't even like that's crazy and today I know that that's crazy but that's some normal stuff that happens every day so how, how did you stop I um I was in the hospital I had a feeding tube um, I had kidney failure. I had pneumonia. I had fluid in my stomach. Um, I had three different infections. I had a tube in every hole of my body. And I was strapped to the bed because the withdrawals, I would hallucinate. Um, it was really intense. And, and they called my family in because I, I was dying. And I just lived. But for the grace of whatever, I survived. And I did day treatment at six months, residential treatment at seven months sober. And then I stayed in the recovery home till I was one year sober. I got the job at Pace before my one year. I, I really followed all of the suggestions and I just took things really slow because the risk of going back was my life. I knew that I was going to die. If you pick up where you leave off, I left off on my deathbed. I was going to die. And I just couldn't when I thought about all these things I was going to have to do to continue using, I just couldn't do it anymore. I was a lost cause. I was literally standing on a corner, strung out all the time. I was like 90 pounds, and, and, and I had lived that way for so long. Like My family had accepted that I was just going to die that way. And, and I started to believe it too, and, and it was so impossible and so hard for me. But, you know, I tapped into some of those community resources, and I really am so grateful that I just had workers who went over and above for me. That's recovering drug user and now peer support worker Vanessa Tukane talking about some of the resources available in Thunder Bay. She used the supervised injection site. The city also has a safe supply program where drug users are prescribed opioids instead of using drugs off the street. But those programs have come under intense scrutiny. One of the main concerns, that these prescription opioids find their way into the wrong hands, sometimes teenagers. One of those worried about diversion of unsupervised safe supply is Mark Mallett, a hospital doctor in Victoria. There's well understood evidence that increased availability of opioids leads to more addiction. That is well established evidence. There is also well established evidence that prescription opioids are generally viewed as safer than street opioids. And so people are more likely to try a prescription drug than they are a street drug, leading to a new addiction. There is plenty of anecdotal evidence that individuals in British Columbia currently who have an addiction began that addiction with safe supply dilaudid that is available on the street. I have personal friends whose kids have been involved with this. I have seen patients in the hospital who have started their addiction with Dilaudid or Dillies. I have been contacted by numerous doctors who have told me that they have patients in this situation. In fact, I was contacted by a pediatrician who was really very distraught because in her practice alone, she had three teenagers 
and their families who were in that very situation, that they were currently living on the street, addicted to dillies, and there was very little that they could do to help them because they had a ready access to ongoing dilaudid on the street. Since you went public with your concerns about the way that Safer Supply um, is working, these particular instances of it, what have you been hearing? I have heard from countless doctors uh, almost unanimous support for what I wrote. So that's emergency doctors, hospitalists, pediatricians, even addictions doctors. I received tremendous support from the medical community for what I wrote, which has been really gratifying, but it has left me wondering, who is it exactly that supports this program? Why is this continuing if virtually every doctor believes that it's a, a mistake? The theory behind harm reduction is you try to keep people alive until they're ready to get treatment. But many conservatives believe it's fueling the crisis. A decade ago, Ben Perrin was Prime Minister Stephen Harper's top criminal justice advisor at a time when Harper was opposed to the expansion of a supervised injection site in Vancouver. But after Perrin left the prime minister's office, he had a change of heart. You know, at the time, I, I didn't know anyone who had actually died from unregulated toxic drugs. I was driving to and from work, though, teaching criminal law in Vancouver at UBC, where I'm a professor. And I began to hear story after story of people who were dying. And it it began to really bother me. Uh, It bothered me because I was part of a government that had created essentially our modern, you know, war on drugs approach. It was clearly failing. You know, anytime you have a policy where it's uh, resulting in in thousands and eventually tens of thousands of people dying, you, you have to look in the mirror and ask, you know, whether you're the problem. So in 2020, Perrin wrote the book Overdose, Heartbreak and Hope in Canada's Opioid Crisis. I asked Perrin about what Conservative leader Pierre Polyev has been saying about policies like BC's move to decriminalization. The results are in. The debate is over. It has been a disaster. Uh, An absolute abject failure. You not only need to take a walk down the streets of East Vancouver, where addicts lay face first on the pavement, where people are living permanently in tents and encampments. But you just need to look at the data. What do you think when you hear that? Uh, Mr. Pelliev has never looked at the data. Um, The fact is that we have an unregulated drug crisis across Canada. We have encampments in every city and town in the the country. And unfortunately, we've had uh, rampant public drug use in many Canadian cities, including in Vancouver, where I live, it well predates decriminalization. So he, he is saying, though, that the, the reason we're seeing that is a, a, a liberalization of policies. We know that's not true. I, I can point to uh, Ontario and Alberta with conservative governments, and I can show you photos in places just like that. The fact is, this is not a political issue, and BC has actually not gone uh, the route that they need to. They're a kind of half-hearted... Uh, one foot in the puddle. The other thing Mr. Polyev has done is he's outright lied. Um, he has also said that the reason Canadians are dying in such large, large numbers is because of uh, safer supply. That is categorically false. It's a lie. It's not true. Both the BC Coroner's Service and the Public Health Agency of Canada have, have confirmed that it is, uh, in, in fact, it's unregulated illicit drugs. 80 to 90 percent of all people who've died it's been from that supply. It, and yet, so, it is not only Pierre Polyev, though. I think it's important to say Ben Perrin, who is raising concerns about at least some aspects of the Safer Supply program. I mean, we talked to Dr. Mark Mallet on this program who said it is unsupervised Safer Supply, that there are instances that he is personally aware of where kids are becoming addicted to these drugs because they're just ending up 
out there in the ecosystem. We know that there are a group of addiction specialists who wrote to the federal addictions minister and said unsupervised safe supply. So a particular approach to safe supply is leading to some really problematic situations where people are becoming addicted. And obviously a potential consequence of that is that people are dying. Does that not concern you? Well, well, I'm I've, I'm familiar with that. Those letter writers, I've read that letter. They don't cite any uh, scientific studies. They're talking about some concerns they've seen in a clinical setting, and that does concern me. What concerns me more is that the leading cause of death in in British Columbia and in other parts of the country from ages 10 into 59 is unregulated toxic drugs, like full stop. The BC Coroner Service this week released new data in BC, which tracks the substances in people's bodies and its unregulated drugs. They're also tracking whether this diversion concern is leading to new people getting addicted or not. And at this point, there's no indication that regulated safer supply is is killing people. The fact is the numbers are, are not there. Like it's less than 5,000 people in BC out of 100,000 who are even able to access a regulated supply. What is flooding our streets is unregulated toxic drugs. This This is a political sideshow. It really is. Now, are there better ways to do safer supply? Absolutely. If people are on board with the idea that we do need to substitute toxic drugs supplied by organized crime with a safer regulated product, how do we do that? That's a really important debate, and we can have that debate, but we're not really having that. We did ask Pierre Polyev's office for a response to Ben Perrin's remarks that Polyev was lying when he linked safe supply to overdose deaths. Polyev's office said they had nothing to add beyond what the opposition leader has already said. In conservative-run Alberta, the premier has also said she doesn't believe in safer supply. Instead, the province is spending millions on recovery centres. I asked Alberta's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Dan Williams, about the province's singular focus. For a long time, we, we only looked at one possible solution, and we didn't seriously consider, as a society, what it takes to overcome addiction. And I put Alberta, along with many others, in that camp where we were not seriously considering... What is the policy outcome if we don't get people recovery? If we don't try and help people who are in that deadly cycle of addiction, we we will continue to see more addiction, more pain, more overdoses, more death. The way to break it inevitably, and it's I, I'm I don't know any other alternative, it's treatment and recovery, especially when we talk about the nature of the opioid and really hard drugs like methamphetamine. So far, Alberta has opened two of eleven planned treatment centers. It does take time to get it going. And I need everyone to understand as well, once we have the recovery spaces, my goal is to build to the point where there's no longer a wait list. In Alberta, you could wait anywhere from a couple of months to a couple of weeks to get into treatment. That's too long because when somebody decides that they want to get treatment, it's a short window often. Uh, Because of the nature of of an addiction, especially an opioid one, There's a certain hold. Uh, You're compelled in so many ways physiologically to continue looking for that high. So if somebody has a moment of clarity... So, sir, let me ask you, though, when, when someone before that moment of clarity, when someone is in that moment where they are still deeply in the throes of addiction and they do not feel ready to seek that treatment, we heard from people who are working with people in active addiction that what they need is something to keep them away from the toxic drug supply, the mm-hmm. drugs that have things in them that they are not expecting, which is leading to the dramatic rise we're seeing in overdose deaths. So why not have alternatives for people who aren't ready for treatment yet? 
Well, first, Catherine, I have to challenge that phrase, toxic drug supply. The truth is, is that all of these drugs are toxic. All of them lead to overdose, whether we're talking about hydromorphone, which is included in the so-called safe or safer supply. It's not safe. So when the Public Health Agency of Canada says toxicity of supply continues to be a major driver of the overdose crisis, when mm-hmm. they say that um, 81% of all deaths involve fentanyl, you just dispute the premise? I believe that those individuals are seeking a high because of their addiction. If we replace the problem of describing it as a toxic drug supply with instead the problem is addiction, which is a biological disease which needs treatment, the solution ends up being recovery. What those individuals are doing when they talk about a toxic drug supply is they're activists and they're advocating for a safe drug supply as the alternative. They are not neutral in their argument. They're saying that if we provide high-powered opioids like hydromorphone, which for the record is five times more powerful than street heroin, then that will solve the problem. Because the problem is the addiction itself, the addiction is the disease, and that is sadly what's killing so many of our family members, I can tell you now it will not solve a problem. Okay, let's explore further this question about how you are dealing with the recovery aspect of this. There is a program in Alberta where children can be forced into treatment by the court for up to 15 days at a time. Your government is also looking at uh, introducing involuntary treatment for adults as well. Some addiction experts have said involuntary treatment doesn't work. Here's Dr. Monty Ghosh, an addictions medicine doctor who does research at the universities of Calgary and Alberta. He says it's hard to say whether or not that will be effective, but I want you to listen to his main concern. I think the biggest fear that I have is that it could re- potentially re-traumatize individuals. If we're forcing treatment to people, if we're forcing injections into them, if we're holding them against their will, if we're essentially incarcerating them, would that not lead to further trauma? And we know that trauma, again, is a direct link to causing more harms to population, which then directly links to increased substance use. So how would you respond to his concern that involuntary treatment might do more harm than good? I would say, first of all, that we have precedent in the Mental Health Act in Alberta, and every single province and territory has parallel legislation that allows involuntary treatment or treatment orders for individuals with mental health issues that are very severe. And the criterion, in a legal sense, within that act in Alberta, which is constitutional, which there's no dispute that it's needed, is when someone is a danger to themselves or others. That's the same criteria on a legal test I am proposing for this legislation. When we're talking about compassion intervention, if somebody is a danger to themselves or others because of their drug use, then I have a couple of thoughts. The alternative to that treatment is harm. It's harm to themselves. It is not at all compassionate in any serious way to leave somebody, maybe a brother or sister of ours, maybe an indigenous woman from my northern constituency who's found her way to Edmonton, in minus 40 weather, suffers from a psychosis, whether it's induced from the addiction or existed as a pre-existing concurrent mental health issue, living rough on the streets or in the bush. And she is in absolute agony and pain because of the, the nature of her, her total capture by this addiction and the drug that fuels it to say, that's some lifestyle or I'm afraid to help you. The alternative to compassion intervention is if somebody has gone through every other alternative and they have no recovery capital left and they are danger to themselves, overdosing potentially multiple times a week, potentially creating permanent brain damage from hypoxia of a lack of oxygen coming to their brain because of the overdoses over and over again, potentially danger to others. At that point, the alternative to living on the street 
And that death or that prison that they live in of their addiction is what I'm comparing the policy option to. And I don't know any reasonable Canadian that really thinks that it's compassionate or reasonable to leave those vulnerable Albertans and Canadians on the street. Alberta's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Dan Williams. Coming up next on this special house podcast. Good boy! Good job! Okay, is there something back there? Is there something back there? Check that out. Good boy! He's a good boy! We'll meet a very good boy as we go on the hunt for illicit drugs at the Canada-U.S. border with a sniffer dog. I'm Catherine Cullen. You're listening to a special edition of Canada's most popular political affairs program. We've compiled our most compelling conversations on the opioid crisis. If you want to hear the full discussion, go to our website, thehouse at cbc.ca. There's an article up with a link to all of the original interviews. I, I wonder if some people think like, okay, I know there's an overdose crisis. There's this problem. It's been going on for some time. But you look at the numbers and you see how much worse things keep getting. And I wonder if you can just describe for me what it is that's happening at this moment that is making this problem so acute. The toxic drug supply comes down to it is the toxic drug supply. And I think our toxicity is a lot different than the big cities. In the big cities, when they want to color drugs, they use cake mix. That's how they color the drugs. And here, according to the police, they use Mr. Clean. That's how they color the drugs, because Mr. Clean comes in all different colors. So when you're in a community like this that is so far away, even when I sold drugs in a big city, there was always a quality level you had to have. Like any business, you have to have quality. But up here, you don't have to have quality. It's demand. And when you can sell a drug up here for four to six times what it goes for in Toronto, people are up here making a fortune. They come from all over the country to come sell drugs here because our drugs are so expensive. They go for so high. We have gangs showing up from all over Canada to try to get rich and we have a police force that can't keep up they can't keep up it's not their fault they literally cannot keep up recovering drug user kyle arnold says the thunder bay police can't keep up with the crime in the northern ontario city but all across canada police and border service agents are trying including a team we met up with in eastern ontario at the lansdowne border crossing We have uh, detector dogs trained in narcotics and firearms. We started that in 1978 in Canada. Mark Patterson is a dog handler with the Canada Border Services Agency, and this is his partner. Yeah, so this is Loki. He's a uh, four-year-old lab. We've had a lot of success at the college with uh, labs and beagles, as well as Springer Spaniels. Uh, it, is a, it is a tough uh, program for the canines. Only one in ten actually end up uh, being successful at the program. Can I pet your partner? Unfortunately, you cannot pet him. He is a service dog, so uh, I'm the only one that can reward him because we don't want him to lose, uh, to lose any focus in the field, right? Loki is a black ball of energy just waiting to be asked to search. The pair work together to find drugs and firearms being smuggled into Canada. He's going to work for probably 8 to 10 years. Typically, we start their training around uh, 11 to uh, 16 months 
uh, of age, and uh, he, he lives with me, and then when it's time for him to uh, retire, I get the option to uh, find a house for him or keep him. And uh, I've gotten a little bit attached, so I think I'm going to, uh, to hold on to this guy when he retires. Loki and Patterson gave us a glimpse of the work that they do, showing us a real vehicle they seized at the border. Loki points out exactly where they found the fentanyl. Search. Okay, so it looks like he's gone straight to the back of the vehicle. He's sniffing around in a circle, sniffing at some seams in the rear trunk area. Okay, he's working his way around, and there we have an indication from him at the back. So I'm going to reward him with this Kong. Good boy! Good job! Okay, is there something back there? Is there something back there? Check that out. Good boy! He's a good boy! All right, so that gives us another area for us to, uh, to look into. In the trunk of that black mid-sized SUV where the spare tire usually goes is a hydraulically powered secret compartment, meaning you can't open it unless you complete a specific sequence in the car. Patterson sits in the driver's seat and shows us how it works. All right, so I'll turn on the vehicle, and now I will activate the sequence required to... Uh, open up our hidden compartment. So this is pretty wild, right? The whole back trunk where you would normally put, if this were my car, I'd be putting my groceries has just lifted right up. Uh, and there's obviously a big storage space in there. That's correct. There is a, a large void there. Um, you could probably fit a spare tire and a, and a couple extra things. And that is where we found the, uh, the fentanyl. Like the panel lifted, as you said, through hydraulics. That's, I mean, that sort of made my eyes bug out of my head. Do you see this kind of thing often? This is a trend that we are, that we are monitoring right now. And uh, we are sharing it with our partners in law enforcement. And uh, yeah, it's a very sophisticated trap that, uh, that we're trying to uh, stay on top of. For more on how sophisticated and extensive the illegal drug market is in Canada, we turn to the RCMP. Mathieu Bertrand is the chief superintendent of serious and organized crime and border integrity. I started by asking him what we know about who is profiting off the toxic drugs on Canadian streets. Really, what we're seeing is that organized crime groups are profiting from the demand or the increasing demand in the drug supply or the illicit drug supply currently. And our concern is that that illicit drug supply is very toxic. We know that an incredible number of people are dying. What do we know about the size of the, the drug trade? Are, are you able to, to quantify how big a problem this is? I can, and it is, it is a very significant problem. Our um, Criminal Intelligence Service Canada in 2023 assumes that there's over 3,500 organized crime groups, uh, not just based in Canada, but operating in Canada. From that large number, they assess 638 groups operating in Canada, uh, and they confirm that 84% of those groups are involved and profiting from the illicit drug trade. And further to that, 21% of those groups are involved with substances that are responsible for the overdose crisis that we're faced with right now. We know that in the United States, Mexican cartels are responsible for a lot of the fentanyl on the streets. In Canada, do we know if the drugs are being imported or if they're actually being made here? That is a great question, and we do know that. Uh, sadly, Canada is a producing country 
of fentanyl and synthetic opioids. Not only are we a producing country, but we're also an export country, which means that the supply is, is larger than the demand or that organized crime groups manufacturing these products in Canada know that there is a more lucrative market in another country. There is also uh, an issue with importation. We do know that fentanyl and other synthetic drugs are being imported from Asian countries and South American countries, but really our efforts, our collaborative efforts in law enforcement in Canada is to address the domestic production because it is significant. Okay. I, I Certainly, I'm sure it's going to raise a lot of eyebrows, the idea that Canada is exporting these drugs. And I do want to dig down into this, but but let's just stay with the idea that you put forward there about so much of this, these drugs being produced in Canada. The raw ingredients to make them, because I know that's been a big part of the conversation in the United States. Where are those coming from and how are they getting into Canada? Uh, so the, the precursors are the chemical products that are being used to produce these synthetic drugs mostly are coming from from Asian countries, but also being transshipped through the United States and some South American countries, uh, Mexico being one of them. You say some Asian countries. We know in the United States there's been a lot of attention on China. Are you talking about China specifically or it's broader than that? It, it is broader. And again, these organized crime groups will ensure that you know, they can get their their chemical precursors into Canada. They'll use any country where they can source those those chemicals. China is one country, obviously, that we are making inroads and in, in collaborating with law enforcement in this country to try and establish collaborative efforts to stem the flow of chemical precursors. Uh, but we will work with any and every country where precursors are coming from. Okay, let's dig into that question of exporting, which I'm sure, as I say, is going to come as a shock to a lot of people. Tell me, I mean, how big is the export market of of fentanyl and other drugs in Canada? It is significant, and um, I don't have figures in front of me, but there are countries around the world where synthetic drug prices are much higher than they are in Canada. And again, going back to these organized crime groups uh, that are all about profits, they are uh, willing to export these products, take the risk to export to different countries rather than sell them in Canada to increase their profit margin. Where are they selling the drugs? We've had um, instances where these types of drugs are being shipped to countries such as Australia, uh, New Zealand. Again, fortunately, we collaborate with these countries uh, within our Five Eyes law enforcement group. Uh, so we have significant successes in disrupting these organized crime groups that are shipping these um, synthetic drugs to other countries. But that is what we're seeing right now in in law enforcement. RCMP Chief Superintendent Mathieu Bertrand. We also asked the public safety minister, Dominic LeBlanc, about Canada being an exporter of illegal fentanyl. It is an alarming increase, both in the production domestically of fentanyl, and we see the consequences in every part of the country, the tragic consequences, Uh, The RCMP have spoken to me often about the challenge of uh, the legality of some of the precursor uh, drugs that can be, in many cases, lawfully imported into Canada. The Commissioner has talked to me about a number uh, of ways that we could legislate perhaps some of the chemicals that go into these very dangerous and illegally made drugs. Um, And the Canadian Border Services Agency uh, has a lot of work to do. It has a lot of work to do around uh, the potential exporting of these uh, illegal substances and importing some of the precursor chemicals. 
years ago, everybody thought that the fentanyl itself was made in some other country. In many cases, people focused on China, and it was imported into Canada. The RCMP tell me that that's also still true, that's also a challenge, but it's even more complicated and worrisome when that challenge is being replaced by our own domestic production of these drugs. So a lot of it has to do with local police, municipal police, provincial police in Ontario and Quebec. But the RCMP and the CBSA have a role to play both in dismantling the production domestically and the CBSA in, in doing everything it can, including with new technologies. They've talked to me about potential new investments in technologies that could better detect the potential exports. So I'm obviously doing everything I can to ensure that they have the necessary resources to bring every bit of pressure to bear. The idea that Canada would export fentanyl uh, is obviously completely unacceptable. We need to deal with our own domestic production, but we shouldn't pass that production on to other countries. We should stop other countries from importing it into Canada, and we should limit the domestic production to the lawful medical use of fentanyl in Canadian hospitals. That's our special coverage of the toxic drug crisis, though we'll keep you informed of any policy changes on this important issue. The season focus, and this special, was led by Kristen Everson, with support from Emma Godmere and Christian Paz-Lang. Our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. We'll be back with regular programming next week. Before we go, though, we're giving the last word to Jameson Shortreed, a paramedic we met in Thunder Bay. It's an infuriating thing to see. It is. I don't understand how people can see this and not want to do anything about it, right? I would go so far as to say it's not even just the politicians. It's all of us, just as people, right? How can we see something like this and not speak up? How can we see something like this and just let it continue, right? It's, it's that it's, it's all across the province, it's all across the nation. The opiate crisis in Canada is becoming huge. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.